Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Revved up and ready to go. How are you? I must confess I am a little nervous. This feels like five years of conversations has finally hit the front page of the policymaking world and it's all coming home to be discussed. It is. It has certainly been a sort of thematic week. I haven't written my daily update for Thursday, but it's going to be on the same topic the rest of the week, which is sort of antitrust. Last week, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who is running for president, announced a proposal about breaking up the big tech companies and entitled, here's how we can break up big tech. And, you know, obviously that is something that is pertinent to the things that we discuss on multiple levels. I wrote about it on Tuesday. I wrote a very long article, potentially the longest article ever in Shrek's history. I'll actually explain why it was so long in a moment. But then uh, of interest, is a few hours before we recorded this, Spotify filed a complaint with the European Commission about Apple and antitrust, which is certainly very interesting. And I think ties into this discussion in some interesting ways that may not be entirely flattering to this proposal, to be honest, but we can sort of get into that. Yep. Sounds like a plan. I do want to make a sort of a big point about why was my article so long? And the reason it was so long is that this point, this question of antitrust, this question of the effects of aggregation sort of in the long run and the way that the returns to scale that result from that has been something that I've been writing about for literally years. This is something that is very important to me. I spent a lot of time thinking about what problems might there be, what harms might there be, what benefits are there, how should people think about regulation in this space? And to that end, to have it in introduced at such a high level, at such a prominent sort of position as a presidential candidate is certainly something that, of course, I'm going to write about it for one. The other thing, though, is I just really fundamentally disagreed with the way this proposal was put together, with the framing that went into this proposal. And so I kind of felt I had no choice but to criticize it pretty harshly. But at the same time, it's easy to sit around and sort of snipe, right? It's easy to sit there and say, what's wrong with something? And given how important I think this topic has been to me, I thought it was only right to spend time laying out where I think we should go instead, right? I don't want to be that guy sitting on the sidelines saying, oh, this is bad, this is bad, this is wrong, to someone who's actually pushing sort of the conversation forward. So I took this, you know, and I said this several times in the article, I appreciate that this is out there because it is by definition going to push the conversation forward. And to that end, I think it's wrong in many respects. I'm going to say why it's wrong, but in this sort of like journey to figure out the truth and the way we should go, I want to push the conversation forward too, which means I'm not just going to disagree. I also want to take the time to lay out where I think focus should be. And so it kind of ended up being like two articles in one, but I thought it was important to sort of put them together in that way. Yeah. Well, 4,900 words. That sounds like the introduction to a book. Apparently nonfiction books are about 60,000 words. So I am 12th of the way there. You have begun your treatise on antitrust, huh? <laughs> well, it's interesting. You know, you think about if you're writing a book, you're writing an article, there's always the sort of framing, right? There's like, what's the context that this discussion is happening? And we've talked about this a lot. I've mentioned in the past, my favorite thing about keynotes is like that first five minutes, right? It's like, Everyone talks about the products, but how is the CEO or whoever is opening it, what framing are they putting around this about where do these products exist big picture in the way we see the world, the way we see our company? For what I do at Shashekari, it's always the most interesting part of any sort of keynote. Humans are storytelling creatures, and like that is the part where you lay out the story. And yes, there is a feeds and speeds aspect to tech folks where they just want to get to the meat of things and like, what are the specs? What got released? But that story is what makes things stick. And I agree with you that it's incredibly important to understand that in order to understand where someone's coming from when they introduce something, whether it's technology or whether it's a proposal to regulate it. Right. And I think that's super important in this case. We're going to get to the concrete list of sort of harms and 
responses of that Warren list. You know, one is around acquisitions. The other one is around sort of platforms competing with other companies on their platforms. But I do think the framing here is really important. I think it's important, <laughs> full disclosure, because I think it's very wrong. And that's why it concerns me if you don't have the right context and framing, you might back into some good solutions, but you're also going to get a lot of other stuff wrong. That's where I personally would like to start. Let's do it. So the framing here right up front is this idea that the reason that the big tech companies today exist is because of antitrust action against Microsoft. I'm actually going to read sort of the introduction here. 25 years ago, Facebook, Google, and Amazon didn't exist. Now they're among the most valuable and well-known companies in the world. It's a great story, but also one that highlights why the government must break up monopolies and promote competitive markets. In the 1990s, Microsoft, the tech giant of its time, was trying to parlay its dominance in computer operating systems into dominance in the new area of web browsing. The federal government sued Microsoft for violating anti-monopoly laws and it eventually reached a settlement. The government's antitrust case against Microsoft helped clear a path for internet companies like Google and Facebook to emerge. This is a popular story amongst lawyers that participated in the antitrust case. This idea that the only reason that Google exists is because of antitrust action against Microsoft. And to my mind, it just is fundamentally wrong. (laughs) I mean, I think it's important to pick apart why it's wrong because it doesn't just get into why it could potentially lead to bad policy. I think it obscures the right policy that we should make in the future. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think you left out one other audience that often tells this story too, which is anonymous Microsoft executives who are doing it to try and explain why they managed to miss the internet. Oh, it just kills me. Whenever this debate comes up, it's always like thrown back at me. Well, Microsoft executives said that that's why it was ended. It's like, well, of course they say that. Like they're the most biased. You talk about humans being storytellers. Like one big reason to tell stories is to absolve yourself of responsibility for missing these huge markets. And again, I'm, it's not just one market. It's not just search. It's Microsoft also missed mobile, which by the way, they weren't inhibited in competing in mobile. <laughs> like they were investing in mobile for years going into it and they missed it. And how do they miss mobile, which is way closer to PCs, yet they would have magically competed on the internet, which has nothing to do with PCs at all. We've touched on this a bunch of times. One of the things that I wrote in the past that I'm relatively proud of is like this article called The Blessing of Failure, which is this observation that tech companies rarely dominate successive paradigms. And that is because they get so invested in the current paradigm that they can't view the next one through anything other than the lens of the current one. And Microsoft, especially with mobile, is like my favorite example of this. They tried to take the Windows PC and shrink it down into to the phone. That's why they missed mobile. Let's get into what was the case about why was Microsoft so concerned about Netscape? And you have to go back to understand, like, what was the source of Microsoft's dominance? And it was not just that they own the operating system, but then all the API on which all these applications were created. And that created this very powerful sort of lock-in because you wanted to make an application with the sort of the most dominant platform or the most widespread platform. Well, if you have the most widespread platform, that's where more developers want to come on and make applications. And you have this very positive virtuous cycle that really locks people in and made it impossible for anyone to not choose Microsoft. There was no way that they could not have a Windows computer because there was already such a huge base of applications that were tied to that API and they weren't easily portable to do somewhere else. And so you would come on as a customer because the applications were there. And as a new developer making a new application, of course you would make it on Windows. And so Microsoft, there 
their entire competitive position was predicated on sort of owning the API. To the extent they saw Netscape as a threat was this idea, and also they felt the same way about Java and things on those lines, was this idea of there being like a middleware, like this intermediary layer that would abstract away the Microsoft API and allow something to be built on top that would be much more easily portable. And the funny thing about this is that's actually what happened, right? Like Microsoft's concerns about Netscape were well-founded. If you look at things today, why can more and more companies offer their, let their employees use Macs, for example? Because most line of business applications, which are the core of the lock-in, people look at consumer apps or apps that are highly visible like Photoshop, but the real lock-in here is all these custom apps that all these companies have that are behind the scenes. And those used to all be written specifically for Windows. Today, they're written for the web and they're run through a browser. And I don't know the numbers. I would bet that most computers used in enterprise today are actually running Chrome and they're using these line of business apps on the web because an intermediate layer was introduced that significantly reduced that sort of lock-in. So they weren't crazy about this. The thing about what you just said, though, is that has absolutely nothing to do with Google. Right. That's exactly it, right? This movement to the web completely changed enterprise. Honestly, if you want to make a case about this being a productive lawsuit, what you should point to is the incredible dynamism in the sort of enterprise software market. This whole move to SaaS and all those sorts of things is sort of predicated on not being locked into that Windows layer. Like this is why details matter. Like there actually are strong arguments to be made that Microsoft was appropriately concerned about the idea of Netscape, that Microsoft was aware that this would have competitive impacts on them. And that in that context, they were acting poorly. And you could certainly make the case that by virtue of the oversight by the DOJ and the settlement, that they didn't go further with things like ActiveX, which was the attempt to sort of lock in web applications to the underlying operating system. Like there actually is a case be made here. That case, to your point, has nothing to do with Google. Google is about information. It's about accessing websites. Google is not about APIs as understood in the context of an operating system. Google is about links, right? I've made this point before that you can think of Google as being an operating system, but it's an operating system for the web where the hardware is not the PC under your desk. The hardware is all the servers of the world. And the API is not the Win32 API. The API is all the links that connect those sites together and the way Google learned to leverage and harvest those links to create a frankly superior product that absolutely did win on the merits. And this was an area that not only was Microsoft not even remotely focused on, they were fundamentally unsuited to compete in. Like everything about the business model, the way the value chain was constructed was just totally different. Google lived in a world where everything was free, everything was easily accessible, and they won by having the best technology. And then they made money on advertising. Microsoft lived in a world where everything was locked in. You had no choice to go anywhere else. And they made money on licensing that they didn't even charge to consumers. From a consumer perspective, it's kind of funny like there is some similarity here. Consumers weren't paying Microsoft. Around Windows 95, there was a, in a segment of the population, a surge of interest in this new operating system. But by and large, people bought computers and it was the computer makers that paid Microsoft. They were just sort of taking a skim all along the way. And it was so fundamentally different from the value chain that sort of Google created and profited from. They were even aware of it. They didn't even envision this being a possibility. We've talked about this before. The fact they were so successful looking at the world in a particular way meant they were were even that much more unsuited to pursue this completely different sort of vision of the world. Yeah, from an organizational perspective, that's true. I think everything that you just said, I would 100% grant you that the statement as is written in that article 
around, isn't it great that we now have the option of using Google instead of being stuck with Bing? That just feels like it's wrong. That being said, as I read this and was thinking back to that period of time, it does feel like there's a kernel of truth to Warren's point that DOJ actions or the threat of DOJ action did cause Microsoft to behave in a very certain way. And the first example that came to mind was Apple. Back in 1997, Microsoft invested $150 million in Apple and very importantly, made available the Microsoft Office suite of applications to Apple. And I know it seems crazy now, but back then, Apple was teetering on the brink. Like they were weeks away from bankruptcy and both the investment by Microsoft was signaling to folks, you can invest in this platform and it's going to be around. But more than that, that software was a critical piece of software for folks when they were deciding to buy an Apple computer. And I think back to why Microsoft might invest in Apple. And at least to some extent, it feels like protection from an accusation of being a monopoly in operating systems ends up being at least some factor in their decision to put that money in and to make Office available for Mac. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, there is some dispute about how close Apple was to bankruptcy. And, and you have to remember this deal also included the settlement of a lawsuit of basically a small company that I think Microsoft acquired straight up lifting code from Apple. So there was other factors going into this. But I do think there is something to the fact that Microsoft saw having Apple around, a company that Microsoft knew was not competitive, right? Why? Because they didn't have the API. It was the API that mattered. And by the way, that is why it's important. The other part of this piece was that Apple make Internet Explorer the default browser on Mac. Because to the extent they were worried about there being this middleware, they wanted to make sure they were controlling the sort of middleware on Apple, just just in case, sort of cover their bases there. All that said, I do think there's something there. They could point to Apple and say, look, we're not a monopoly. There's sort of competition out there. But I'm not sure that this is really evidence that even the threat of antitrust action was particularly effective. It kind of feels like a fig leaf because we know for a fact that Microsoft was sending emails to each other talking about how they're going to crush Netscape and sort of deprive them from air at the exact same time that they were making this investment in Apple. I mean, it kind of feels like they knew they were acting super anti-competitively and they wanted a fig leaf to sort of say, oh, no, it's not, we're not actually monopoly, so we can do what we want. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some truth to that. I think this notion of then looking for when companies are starting to act with fig leaves starts to get important. But I mean, there is also the lesson of history or the way that it all worked out, which Microsoft could never have predicted. But that company that they decided to keep around just for competition's sake ended up providing them with a boatload of competition because they were the ones that ended up stealing Microsoft's crown when it ended up coming to the next paradigm, which was mobile. Well, I would say the next paradigm was the internet. People talk about Microsoft missing mobile. Microsoft started building mobile in like Windows Mobile came out in 2000. They didn't miss mobile. They just sucked at mobile. <laughs> um, Microsoft utterly and completely missed the internet. And people miss this because the whole thing was about browsers and want browsers about the internet. Microsoft was viewing browsers as an application environment. They were not viewing browsers as the internet and sort of the information sort of economy, <laughs> to use a sort of cliche term. Like that just wasn't even on their radar in the way they were considering things. But even to your point about Apple coming along and beating Microsoft, well, Microsoft still had plenty of advantage in the market, but it goes back to the point I made about why didn't they succeed in search? Like one, they didn't even compete in search. Again, they were licensing search results until like 2004 or something along those lines. So they didn't even come out with their own search engine until like eight or nine years until Google was introduced. So, I mean, this idea that there but for the DOJ, go us, we're definitely going to crush Google is 
transparently ridiculous. But this mobile point is a good one because they were trying in mobile. They couldn't compete and they couldn't compete for lots of reasons. I think with Apple, they were a company that was predicated on the API. They were predicated on backwards compatibility, all those sorts of things. They were not a company that was predicated on delivering a superior user experience. Whereas Apple, even in those dying days, that was all they had. And so like Apple was very much better placed from a product perspective. They also didn't have the right sort of business model to think about it. Apple was never going to own the entire smartphone market. Someone was going to own the rest of it. Why wasn't it Microsoft? Well, because they were still stuck with the, we're going to license it. We're going to do a licensing model where with the same thing we did in PCs. And oh, we're going to presume everyone has a PC and we're going to build an operating system that is meant to work with a PC. And Google comes along with a quote unquote free made possible by the fact they built this sort of virtuous cycle around data and advertising that made it viable. And again, I think that was more of a secondary effect. I think what Google wanted, Google just didn't want Microsoft to win. And so they came in and sort of blew them out of the water. But if you back up and look at it, Microsoft had a head start in mobile. They had expertise in operating systems. They had a relationship with OEMs and they still completely failed because they could not break out of the PC approach and mindset. Again, if they couldn't succeed in mobile to suggest that, but for the DOJ, they would have successfully competed with or suppressed Google makes no sense at all. I'm with you. I do agree. I think what's interesting though is I think that what you just said, what we've talked about, this notion of you're not going to win in successive paradigms, or at least if you try and do it all by yourself, which Microsoft very much took that approach. I think what's interesting comparing companies back then to companies now is that they saw what happened with Microsoft and how Microsoft completely missed the web and then was trying with mobile, but completely sucked at it and ended up losing. I think there's an argument to be made that companies today have learned from that. And the realization is that the way to solve for this is to be acquisitive. Because if I think back to what the right approach for Microsoft would have been way back in the early days of 2000, 2002, whatever it was, they should have just bought Google, left it separate and let them do their thing. In retrospect, it's easy to say that there's no evidence to suggests that Microsoft was actively looking at it, though they were playing in the search space, but not very effectively. But I think companies saw what happened to Microsoft and have learned that lesson and realized that acquisitions is the right approach. And in a funny kind of way, does make the case for antitrust being really important. It's just not the case that Warren makes in her article at all. Yeah, I certainly agree. And I think this is, you know, we can draw on the history that, that I've written about and we've talked about where acquisitions has always been a core thing for me. And I think you make a really, really good point. It's funny if you think back to Microsoft back in the day, you know, yes, they could have acquired Google. Even then, I would push back on that they didn't because of the DOJ. I think it didn't occur to them. And if you think about it, what did they do against Netscape? They built it themselves and they crushed them. They didn't have to buy them, right? And I think Microsoft, particularly back then, had an extremely strong, which is a sense in tech generally, but it was much stronger back then. It was really strong at Microsoft of sort of not invented here, where we're not going to buy it. We're just going to build the same thing and crush you. Like embrace, extend, extinguish, that famous sort of saying. What was the lesson, if any lesson they learned from Netscape. It was, it works, right? They crushed Netscape. You know, that's the thing about it. And oh, by the way, that's another fascinating thing about this whole Google Microsoft thing. When Google IPO'd, Microsoft Internet Explorer had 95% of the market, right? It really gets at the point to which Microsoft missed the point. Like they won the battle and utterly lost the war as far as the web is concerned. And there's like no greater statistic that, that shows it than that. But you're right. Google did learn from Microsoft. And yes, Google occasionally would try to build things instead of 
copy. And then they realized actually acquiring is better. This happened in the case of YouTube. They first tried to build Google Video, realized they were failing, and then, no, we should just go buy it. Facebook arguably learned the lesson even more. I mean, you still have this. Like, they tried to build competitors to products, and they would always fail. And then they kind of figured out, no, we should just actually buy the entire thing. And if you look at it sort of theoretically, this makes all kinds of sense, right? Why do you invent something from scratch? You invent it from scratch because you have no other option, right? You don't have the capital to go out and buy something. You know, And that's why startups are hard. There's an aspect of finding product market fit, having the timing right, scaling up, going through all the challenges that you face. It's really, really hard. Why would you want to go through that process all over again, basically try to catch lightning in a bottle twice if you could just buy it? <laughs> and so leaving aside antitrust concerns, if you just think through it, you've built up this business that throws off tons of cash, by far the most efficient way to sort of expand is not to try to recreate your story of being in a college dorm room. It's to take all that cash and buy someone else's dorm room project. I mean, this pretty neatly segues into the latter half of Senator Warren's article where she starts to outline the problems and then she starts to outline the solutions. And I think personally that half of this, she's kind of right. And this is the part where I agree. So she talks about using mergers to limit competition. And then she talks in terms of the prescription to appoint regulators committing to reversing illegal and anti-competitive tech mergers. This was the part of it where, and I'm sure we're going to get into the other half of it later on in this podcast. But this was the part of it where, okay, I think I see where you're coming from. I see, particularly in the instances of the examples you just raised, this is where these companies have been able to extend their market power. And I feel like having competition would limit some of the ills that we've talked about over the sweep of the last five years. Yes, big picture, I agree. And I say this having written quite specifically that there needs to be much more attention paid to acquisitions, particularly when it comes to, you know, sort of demand driven network effect companies buying other demand driven network effects because you're increasing sort of your pool of demand. And that's very problematic as far as competition is concerned. At the same time, this is why I'm frustrated about sort of the historical context being off and the sort of assertion that these companies are large because of mergers. Because, I mean, just look at sort of some of the specifics here. One of the examples given is that Amazon would have to divest Whole Foods. Like we just podcasted, I think, two weeks ago about why Amazon actually may not be particularly competitive with Whole Foods and are facing challenges and the extent to which it has driven significant innovation in the rest of the grocery markets. Or like Google buying Nest. To what extent was Google buying Nest? Did that drive Amazon Alexa coming out? Or all these competing products, you know, coming out with different innovations and different sort of products and different tie-ins with broad ecosystems that, you know, there's no sort of fiercer competition right now than the sort of internet of things seen in the home. I mean, the problem with not having the right framing and all these issues is you sort of say acquisitions bad and are acquisitions bad. And not only that, there is a real concern about acquisitions when it comes to the impact on new company formation, right? If it's suddenly the case that it is impossible to exit via acquisition for any sort of company, because again, the point of listing those examples is there's no sort of fine tuning about which acquisitions are problematic and which aren't is you actually do start chilling innovation by virtue of, you know, she talks about the idea of new companies not starting. You want to make it so that far fewer companies start, make it that it's dramatically more difficult to exit. That's a great way to limit new company formation. This is why the details are so important. Like, I think we both completely agree. And I've said before, I think Facebook's acquisition of Instagram was the greatest regulatory failure of the last decade. And I absolutely believe that's the case. 
but you have to understand why that is the case. In this case, it's because the issue here is advertising. It's the consolidation of the advertising market. It's the fact that we have plenty of evidence that you can definitely build new social networks today. Snapchat came up in a world where Facebook was absolutely dominant. Discord is, is exploding. This sort of private social networking, it's kind of like Slack, but for gamers. Slack itself and its sort of rising consumer market, all these messaging apps, they all came up in the age of Facebook. There is plenty of evidence that it is possible to build a social network today. What there is no evidence of is that it's possible to monetize it properly. And the reason we've explained, we don't need to get into it again, but this idea that Facebook has a full plethora of places you can go. If you want to reach young people, if young people were deserting Facebook, Facebook would be in big trouble. But now they say, oh, just go to Instagram and you don't have to go to the trouble of going to Snapchat. So in this case, it's right. This acquisition was a big problem. But when you don't dig into the details of why, then you start saying all acquisitions are bad and your unintended consequences of that sort of thinking would be very, very profound. Sorry, I I got a a little rant there. No, but I think it's exactly right. Like this is a scalpel that needs to be held, not a sledgehammer. And if you end up saying all acquisitions are bad and that these big companies can't acquire anything, then you're absolutely right. Like the new market innovations that you're hoping to create, you end up, yes, you might create some more, but you end up stifling a whole bunch because there are exits that are no longer available to these companies. And that is an important outcome. Like there is a meaningful number of companies for that, that is a good outcome. Well, not just that, but this is a way to propagate innovation broadly, right? Right. Apple buying PA Semi. Yeah, Apple buying PA Semi and creating these amazing processors that are just great for end users. That is a great outcome of an acquisition for everyone involved. And oh, by the way, it caught Qualcomm with their pants down who thought they had a monopoly in the space. And now they had to sort of get back on the train and figure out how they could catch up. Competition is a great thing and acquisitions can be great things for everyone involved as well. The fact that PA Semi was even invented in the first place because they could eventually be acquired. The fact that Apple was able to acquire it and spread it out to everyone. These are great outcomes. And why is that okay? Why is PSMI one that I'm not particularly concerned about? Because PSMI is not bringing a pre-existing customer base and their own network effect and combining with Apple's network effect, right? That's the ones I'm worried about. I'm worried about Instagram with a network effect. And yes, it was only a million users then, but yes, everyone in Silicon Valley knew this was a steal given the sort of company that it was, what they were going to be. And it's still blows my mind that one of the reasons why the Instagram purchase was approved was because they didn't have a business model or they didn't make money. Of course it was going to be advertising, right? You can't build a social network and have it not be advertising for reasons we've discussed. At least a broad-based sort of one that they were on the way to being. That You need to have the users on the platform. To me, that's why I pushed so hard on this point. We have seen the current approach fail. We have seen the consequences of it not failing, but that doesn't mean your point about scalpel versus sledgehammer is exactly right. That doesn't mean we kill acquisitions. I would rather have the current state of affairs than have all acquisitions sort of blankly killed as she's promoting, because I think the knock-on effects would be way worse than the problems that it would purport to solve. I mean, this point around Instagram, there are definitely a lot of folks around Silicon Valley who knew that it was going to be successful and it was on a path to being successful. At the same time, there were people questioning whether Facebook overpaid for it at the time. If there's a debate about that in terms of the likes of us, it's going to be extremely challenging for policymakers to be able to identify these things ex ante. Even the notion of just like, scaling a social network before monetizing further down. Again, that's something that's now widely known amongst the folks that will listen to this podcast. And I, I don't know, I think 
the extent to which tech is changing and expecting policymakers to be able to keep up, I do think this does present a pretty good example of how allowing regulators in certain instances to reach back and undo these mergers, but simply because it wasn't understood. I think this is a pretty good example of like, yes, ideally you would make the decision at the outset, but I think there are instances where actually going back and undoing it might be warranted. That's an interesting point because my sort of initial reaction to your saying that people don't even generally get that you pay a lot up front and then you get the benefits in the long run. Like that's still the case, right? You look at the broad sort of discussion around unicorn startups and be like, how can it be worth this much? They lose so much money, right? Like in the general population, I agree. There's still sort of a fundamental lack of understanding about the way that technology works and the way that this idea of massive investments and fixed costs that we made up with sort of zero marginal cost offerings in the long run is not one that's sort of widely understood. You could definitely make an argument that's the strongest possible reason why we should be exceptionally hesitant to be watching into regulation of these sorts of things. Like, why are we regulating something that we don't even understand at a very fundamental level? And that really gets into what bothered me about this article. It just felt like there was a lack of big is bad. We're going to break it apart without actually parsing into the details of what is. And to your point, well, maybe that's why we should have latitude to go backwards, I think is a fair one. But particularly if we're going to go backwards, particularly if we're going to sort of the rule of law does sort of mean something. And if something is decided, it's usually decided. It's very fraught in many respects. And it's fraught. You're going to really disrupt a company to a far greater degree than you would from stopping an acquisition. There's going to be tremendous costs involved. Even more important it is in that case. That was a very Yoda-like statement. But it's even more important that you understand exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it and lumping in the sort of breaking apart Instagram with breaking apart Whole Foods to me suggests that we're treading in exceptionally dangerous waters. Granted. And I mean, I think this is as good a point as any to pivot into the second problem that's identified in the second prescription. So that is using proprietary marketplaces to limit competition. And then the prescription that is noted is by passing legislation that requires large tech platforms to be designated as platform utilities and broken apart from any participant on that platform. Now, I have to confess at first blush, the thought of Amazon using their data to create competitors that are private labeled uh, based on the data that they get or Apple having access to the app store and then charging everyone a 30% cut and favoring their own apps. So for example, Apple Music, I'm assuming doesn't have to deal with the ramifications of the 30% margin it has to give up to Apple, whereas Spotify did. On some level, it was like, you know what, maybe she's onto something. And it's not until you start to take this, again, very blunt And I feel like I know where this is coming from. This is an attempt to create a generalizable solution that works for all of tech. There's this famous precedent. They talk about it in legal circles about laws about horses. And you go back and you read about laws that relate specifically to horses. And it just makes absolutely no sense in the modern era. And I get the desire to make it generalizable. But I feel like when you start to apply what is being prescribed here to all the specific instances of all the specific companies that would be affected, you begin to realize this is potentially (laughs) an instance of generalizability taken a little bit too far. Yeah, I agree. I think I would back up sort of big picture. I think your, your point is well made. I think there's a problem in general by looking at 
tech as some sort of monolithic entity. Like there's retail and there's tech and there's, you know, uh, CPG and there's like different categories that you may look at, hospitality, whatever it might be. It looks at tech as like the defining characteristic when tech is a means. Tech is a means to compete in the market. There are purely tech companies. Like Google is a pure tech company. You smartphones are probably close to being a pure tech company. But like Amazon, is Amazon a tech company? Like Amazon's a retail company, right? At least the part of Amazon that we're discussing in the context of this, to take the exact same rules for an Amazon and say they're going to apply to Google and apply to Apple, it doesn't make much sense. Why would you want to take the same rules that you apply to the retail sector and apply them to whatever, you know, the farming sector or whatever it might be, right? And to the extent that you do do that, your rules need to be far less specific, if that makes sense, which, you know, I get the desire to not do that because then it's harder to have any sort of things occur, but you're also going to have tons of unintended consequences in the other direction. Here, though, the specifics are a little disappointing. You mentioned the private label thing. and They talk about, oh, well, Amazon Basics couldn't be sold on Amazon Marketplace. Well, Amazon Basics is not sold on Amazon Marketplace. Amazon Basics is sold on Amazon. And like, there's no mention of the Amazon sort of retail. And, and details matter, right? Amazon started out as a company that was a traditional retailer. They bought things from wholesalers and they sold them to customers. They were sort of sitting in the middle of that transaction. 10 years in, they created the Marketplace. A merchant could sell their goods goods, not to Amazon, they could sell their goods directly to the customer. And Amazon would facilitate that purchase. They would handle the payments. They would handle the fulfillment all for a fee and a percentage of sort of the purchase. But Amazon was never actually acquiring ownership. And like, just take an example. If you want to sell a roll of toilet paper, right? The old model, the retail model is you sell the toilet paper to Amazon. Amazon owns the toilet paper. The toilet paper is on their inventory. It's on their balance sheet. Then they turn around, they sell it at a markup to a customer, right? Other option two is I'm selling toilet paper and I list the toilet paper on amazon.com, but when the customer purchases that, there's no transfer of ownership to Amazon happens. Amazon will for a fee, facilitate the delivery of that toilet paper to the customer, but they are never owning the toilet paper in the first place. The reason why this matters is this prescription here that you cannot compete on your market. The implication is that Amazon has to literally chop off 50% of their business because 50% of their items sold are sold by Amazon. And then 50% is sold on the marketplace. And that's the core of their business, where their business started. And not just that, the goal here is to protect merchants. Why do merchants go on to the third-party marketplace? They go onto the third-party marketplace because lots of consumers are there. Why are lots of consumers are there? Because Amazon is selling lots of stuff that they want to buy. Like the entire reason in this supposed goal to protect these merchants, you're actually cutting off the entire reason why they're there in the first place. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing where, like you said, <laughs> the details matter. And when you're talking about this drastic an action with companies that are this large and this woven into the economy, like getting to the point of the details and it is absolutely critical. Now, again, I think the recognition of the problem that because these platforms are in the position that they are in, they are in a privileged position to create things like private labels. And maybe there's something about Amazon that feels a little different to Walmart or Costco doing the same thing. I think that's something that resonates with people. What is different though? What's different about Walmart selling private labels versus Costco selling private labels versus Amazon selling private labels? And oh, by the way, don't say it's because Amazon's big because Walmart is twice the size as far as revenue goes. This is a really good question and I struggle to answer it. I think the closest I can get to is when you walk into a retailer, you walk 
down the aisles and you look on the shelves. And if you want to pick up the home brand, the private label version, you can, or you can pick up the Duracell or the Energizer. But the nature of the online shopping experience is different because of search. And Amazon is able to not just create a line of products in a category, but because of the nature of search and how they can shape the search results, they can privilege their products to an extent that's even greater than what a Walmart or a Costco could do. Well, sure. But I mean, you can do the same thing in a store. You can have end caps that only have your private labels and the branded ones are buried. I mean, this is why they spend money on branding because they want the customer to seek them out. I mean, if you search for Energizer on Amazon, you get nothing but Energizer batteries. And not just that, but there are huge sort of consumer benefits that come from private labels. I mean, the most obvious one is you get items that are cheaper, which is good for consumers. But a less appreciated one is that for retailers, which are dealing in like single digit margins, they make disproportionately larger margin on private label goods. That's why they sell private label goods. The issue is if those go away, then now the price of everything else has to be raised to compensate for it. So it's not simply that you no longer get access to cheaper goods, but also all the other goods get more expensive at the same time. Like we've had this debate, like that's why private labels, they're not issuing anyone else. Yes, the brands hate them, but the brands can go somewhere else and sell, or they can push back or they can cut deals to buy end cap space, which is how retail's worked for a very long time. I hear 100% on these private brands, and I must confess that I am something of a fan of Costco's private brand, the Kirkland stuff. It's all fantastic. At the same time, maybe the right answer here, because of the dynamics at play, is that everything should be the actual price, and that this is something that we should consider changing. So if I go to Amazon right now and I type in batteries, the first row of results is, well, it's basically basically a sponsored by the Energizer bunny, like a banner ad. And then the first result is Energizer, but it's sponsored. So that's Energizer paying, like Amazon's making money, not just because they're stocking their own batteries, but because they're also making advertising dollars off Energizer. And then the next result is exactly the same. And then it's the Amazon batteries, which is Amazon's choice. And then the last result in that first row, when you view it as four products across, only then does the Energizer non-sponsored products show up. And if you keep scrolling down to what is actually the best seller in batteries, it's buried by Amazon. And it's just this notion that something about the way that search is happening on these stores feels different. Well, I mean, buried is a bit strong. It's literally the next yeah, one. Okay, below it. A, little, a little bit of a <laughs> that. Granted, I granted. We know everyone loves James Rant, so I'm not one to object. But this happens in retail. Like shelf placement is bought and sold. End caps, what you see in a store, are sold. And the retail store is making the money coming and going. They're making money by companies paying to put products on a certain place on the shelf. And they're making money when the products are sold themselves. Like it's the same sort of thing. And again, there is real customer benefit from there being, you know, different priced options for batteries. Batteries are a pretty sort of important thing to lots of people's homes, not just people that are as well off as you or I am. And again, like, yes, I get the concept of search, but (laughs) like literally going one spot over or one row down is a lot easier than having to walk across the street if a retailer is acting badly. I mean, again, there's the fact that what sort of lockdown does Amazon have on the market? They have 5% of U.S. retail. Like, that's incredibly impressive. And that's one reason they're worth a lot of money. But at the same time, if I don't like Walmart, I have to find another store. If you're in a small town America, 
America, believe me, it's not always easy. Sometimes you have to drive to get another store. If I don't like Amazon, I can literally move my fingers and go somewhere else. Like to what extent is this not just good business? We limit these things when we're in markets where there is no choice. There is no competition. That's when you're restrained on these sort of activities. Where is the restraint here? Like what's the problem that's being solved? Yeah, I mean, I think your point about it being a restraint is right. I think restraint is the old way of thinking about things from an antitrust and from a delivering to consumers perspective. Now it's the reduction of friction and the companies that reduce the friction the most that to your point around aggregation theory, the companies that deliver the best customer experience end up being the ones that end up winning. And I think the reason that Amazon is worth so much is yes, in part because it has 5% market share, but it's also in part because I think folks recognize the way this is all going to play out because they have been so good at reducing friction, because they've built this logistics network and because of the nature of prime and the way that shopping behavior is evolving is yes, people could, but they don't. And I don't think it's going to stop at 5%. I think there's something about this company and the way that it has been built and the offering that it has and the dynamics that are at work at the internet versus traditional retail where it just feels different. And yes, I know that's like a deeply unsatisfying answer, but there's something about it. And I think understanding and acknowledging that is also important because these regulatory pushes are in part political as much as they are getting the actual thing right. And there is a feeling deep inside where something about this is different from what came before. This is sounding a little bit, though, like legislating minority report style. Like, I can feel, I can sense, I think it's going to be different. Well, you go back, all these arguments you're making were made about Walmart. Like, the hysteria around Walmart crushing everything was certainly very widespread. And look at Walmart today, like, oh, getting their rear end sort of kicked by Amazon to the extent that we discussed. And oh, by the way, fighting back and actually innovating in a way that's friendly to customers. This goes back to the whole food thing. I mentioned this earlier. But the grocery delivery ecosystem for everyone is way better and way more innovative because Amazon bought Whole Foods, because the entry of a competitor spurred competition. That's a great thing. And you talk about this idea of limiting, oh, you know, these things are going to hurt third parties. I know there are like a few anecdotes floating around about Amazon doing this and very problematic should be looked into. I need more than anecdotes. I need some actual data that this is having a delirious effect on small businesses. Because the reality is, try doing a search for like getting started on Amazon Marketplace. Like there is an entire industry, like this SEO industry back in the day with Google, that's all about helping new companies, small companies get onto Amazon and leverage this incredible opportunity to reach people all over the world, have all your logistics taken care of. It's the exact sort of company that I'm so excited about just generally, this idea that small entrepreneurs can make a go of it. And yes, If Amazon is going on there and just picking things out and crushing them, we have tools and means to look at that. But if you actually want data, I don't know this for a fact, but I would wager a significant amount that the number of businesses that have been crushed by Amazon are vastly outweighed by the number of businesses that Amazon has created through its marketplace. And focusing on one side of the equation and completely ignoring the other one is, again, a great way to make bad policy. And I appreciate your sense about this. And I'm the one that wrote this idea that aggregation has these sort of winner-take-all effects, and that's why we need to be concerned about it. But at the same time, and this isn't attacking you, this is attacking you know Senator Warren's proposal, you don't cleave apart these large companies that have tremendous 
positive effects and yes, negative effects, but also tremendous positive effects based on a feeling or a sense. Yeah, I can't argue with it. I want to articulate <laughs> my feelings. I think there's something really key there, though. There's a sense about tech is bad and like people just want to jump on this bandwagon because finally someone's taking on big tech. And that's a terrible way to make policy just in general. And it's a particularly terrible way when you're dealing with this particular sector. And again, I hesitate to use the word sector because of the rant I went on earlier, but that is underlying and driving so much of the economy generally and not just the economy, but small businesses. Businesses benefit from Facebook advertising. Businesses benefit from Google advertising. Businesses benefit from smartphones existing. They benefit from there being platforms like Amazon Marketplace. This isn't a open and shut case by any means. And it concerns me that there isn't even like an awareness of these upsides. Just like big is bad, big is bad. Okay. All right. So I want to be very explicit in granting you the Amazon point. I think this is a good example where it needs to be much more carefully thought through and much more precise because you're exactly right from a small business perspective. I think marketplace and what Amazon represents has done much more good than bad. I understand that there are benefits to small business from there being a limited number of places from advertising with Google and Facebook, which you just said in your last statement. Granted, I work with small businesses to help them and having a limited number of places is beneficial. I don't think that excuses the monopoly conversation that we had earlier, but I don't think that was the point that you were trying to make either. I just wanted to be very specific about that one thing. Yeah. Well, I think this is a useful way to pivot into, again, why my article was so long. Like, I do think there are genuine issues. And so that's why I didn't want to come across here. Just like I've certainly gotten myself worked up here, just attacking, attacking, attacking. And that's fine. I think that's necessary because I do think this is a bad proposal. But to your point, there are hints of things that are good here and it's worthwhile pursuing those. And I tried to do that. I wanted to take the time to explain where we should be going. This proposal almost worries me that it's going to sort of like poison the water in a way. There are these transparent problems like the whole splitting up Amazon sort of thing that if you think about it for two seconds, doesn't actually make sense. And it, the concern I have is that this conversation is going to go entirely kaput because the first proposal did not actually represent the world as it was in my estimation. That's why I want to say, no, there, there are issues. There are things to discuss. And here's some of the ones that we should discuss. You made the point exactly right. There is an issue with digital advertising. I absolutely think this is the case. We've referenced it several times in this conversation. We've referenced it multiple times over the course of Exponent. I've written about it many times. There is a duopoly in digital advertising that is only growing in power, and it's growing in power for sort of predictable, understandable reasons. To the extent there is a slowdown in sort of new company formation and stagnation, I wrote about this last year. Like The consumer tech sector is pretty boring right now, and it's boring because we're kind of waiting to see what the these big companies will deign to give us. And what we're not seeing is the sort of dynamism and excitement that we see in, on the enterprise side, because there is no competition in sort of monetization. The monetization, like you can build a social network, but can you actually monetize it? The problem here, and I felt a little sheepish about this, is, you know, I think this is where focus should go. I don't have the answer to it. I'm not sure. And maybe your point unrolling some of those mergers may actually make sense. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm queasy about it, but at least that's directionally dealing with a real problem. But again, that's why specifics matter. Like just because Instagram is definitely a competition issue when you think about it in terms of advertising doesn't mean that Whole Foods or Nestar. 
Yeah, 100% with you. I think there's value in continuing to take a look at some of the specific examples to think about what the problem and the prescriptions might be. And I think there are two more. The first one that came to mind that got referenced in the article, and it's one that we've talked about before, is the Google and Yelp situation. And you can think about it in terms of building a online business, potentially VC-backed, around creating this aggregation of information that's helpful to consumers. And Google, again, somewhat similarly to Amazon, is in a privileged position in being able to see where search traffic is exploding. And this is something that consumers want and that they create a competitor or they take the information that the company was providing and you had to click through and they reduced the friction and they put it as an immediate search results like a quick box where the information is right where you need it and you don't need to click on anything at all. And from the perspective of seeing more businesses like the Yelps or like the TripAdvisors or whatever it might be created, it does feel like because Google's privileged position, they are in a position where, yes, it makes it better for consumers because the information is available more quickly or so on. But if you're creating one of these companies, it does feel like it's a little unfair that they step in and just take what you are doing once you get successful. Yeah, I do think another significant regulatory failure was when Google was basically scraping information and to sort of build up these competitive platforms or competitive offerings to local search, for example, was just egregious behavior. And the fact they got off with sort of a promise that we're not going to do it anymore was, I think, a significant failing. Like There should have been a large fine for that. It's wrong that they were able to basically get off with, with less than a slap on a rich, not even a consent decree. So I do agree with that there. I'm a little more skeptical about some of the broader complaints because remember the context of when Google did sort of the quick boxes, it was a shift to mobile and the talk everywhere. And this was widespread in Silicon Valley and drove a lot of investments was that Google is doomed because on mobile, people will start doing vertical search. They will download Yelp and they'll search for Yelp and they won't even bother going to Google. And this is a genuine concern because we see it in shopping, right? Amazon has actually achieved this where people start their shopping on Amazon and they don't necessarily start with Google, which sort of applies to this argument in all sorts of interesting ways that are not always consistent. Google did this in the context of, well, our product is inferior. We give 10 links and other people deliver much more compelling sort of results. Again, I think the scraping was wrong, but I have a little bit of a hard time saying that they should be able to build a competitive product is itself wrong. I mean, the fact of the matter is people are looking for answers. They're not looking for search results. I mean, there's that EU case about Google and shopping that I think was very poorly decided, which was brought by a company called Foundum, which was a shopping comparison site. And there's saying, oh, we used to be high in Google search results and now we're low. And the search results they were talking about, like if you search for shoes, guess what Google gives you? They give you shoes, right? And if you search for shopping comparison site, guess what Google gives you? They give you shopping comparison sites. Like Google wasn't burying them if users were asking for them. They were somehow supposing that Google was compelled to act as their traffic lead generator and they should do it for free. This is where I get a little fuzzy around some of the Yelp stuff, right? The ease of accessing Yelp, of going to Yelp.com in the browser, okay, sure. But going down on the Yelp app, like that is a fantastic opportunity to basically avoid Google completely. And mobile was a great thing for Yelp. And Google should not be allowed to sort of respond and has to instead sort of drive traffic to Yelp on their behalf. Uh, it's not as clear cut as it seems. 
Yeah, I agree. I see both sides of this one as well. I do too. And again, Google acted very badly in this case. And I think it was a big failure, but the scraping was completely wrong. And it is a clear example of regulators falling asleep at the switch around the same time frame as Instagram, I would note. Right. I mean, there's a case to be made that because of the scraping, it gave Google a head start, which then enabled them to like have something in these core markets where they compete with Yelp, but also build up an understanding of how to do it in other markets before Yelp could get there. But Google already was. It's definitely a fair point. I did want to get to the other two things. One is acquisitions. I guess we don't need to get into that again because I think we've already talked about this. But the idea of acquisitions being really important because it's a way for an aggregator to extend their reach via cash, basically. They use their cash to grow out. And they already have so many advantages, right? I've, this virtuous cycle we've talked about where you get users and you bring suppliers on your platform and they're all doing it voluntarily because it makes sense for them to do it. And like that's already so powerful. I think there's a lot to be gained by boxing that in, right? Let them play in their play box. Let them dominate their play box. They've earned it, but let's keep it in the play box, right? And I think Facebook is the perfect example of this. If Facebook only ever had Facebook and was never allowed to get Instagram, the Facebook problem would be taken care of, right? Absolutely. Like for all the reasons we talked about, absolutely agree. Yeah. So I'm repeating myself. I did want to get to the last point because this is a new addition to my regulation platform, which I do think regulators need to take a much closer look at contracts. And by contracts, I mean a way in which an aggregator or a company with market power is extending that power through legal means. And you go back to Microsoft, the most egregious thing Microsoft was doing in the context, like if you think about pre-installing a browser, having a browser in your operating system, in retrospect, it's kind of amazing that was that issue because, of course, an operating system would have a browser. But what was really egregious then and egregious today was these contracts they were making with OEMs, forcing them to not include Netscape or force them to include IE and lots of restraints they were putting on them. And why were they doing that? Because they knew that no one would buy a computer without Windows. So they were leveraging that power into clearly an anti-competitive means via contract. And this is where the EU got Google right, where Google would forbid OEMs from building any phone that did not have Android if they had one phone with Android. And so they were constraining something that had nothing to do with the phones in question. They were making a deal. You're going to make a phone. It's going to have Android and Play Store on it. And they're saying, oh, you also can't do this other stuff. Why? Because we know you need Play Store. And so we're going to leverage that into constraining other activities that would be potentially competitive. Clearly wrong. The European Commission was right to rule against Google in that case. And I'd also put the App Store in here, too. Like, the App Store is an artificial construct enforced by rules. Like, there's no structural reasons why you can't link to a web page for purchases for eBooks, like you can on Android, for example. It's because Apple made a rule about it that developers have to agree to, and they enforce that rule with App Review. Why? To extend their sort of advantage that they have in the customer base into this new digital services, for example. And I think these all sort of fit. And, that, you know, we could talk about the Spotify thing was definitely touches on this. Aggregation theory, I think, is something that arises naturally given the nature of the internet. But I think a smart way to think about from a regulatory perspective, it's very hard to interfere with something that sort of happens in that way. Because even if you kill one, like another one's going to rise up in its place. But what you can do is not let that power be leveraged. And number one, don't let it leverage through acquisitions. And number two, don't let it be leveraged through contracts. You know, it's interesting. In the context of the Apple conversation, when you came at it from the perspective of this is a problem that Apple has and they should just undo it because they're a monopoly, I was much more resistant to that idea than 
framing it as this is a contractual thing and these folks have market power and they're leveraging it through the use of contracts. And actually, this is something that needs to be more closely watched. I find that approach in on the problem much more compelling than I find going in on Apple specifically. Well, thank you. That brings a smile to my face. Nothing makes me happier than converting you on a point. (laughs) But think about the Spotify thing. I mean, it's interesting because the Spotify thing is super interesting. And frankly, I have a very hard time imagining any way that Spotify doesn't win this. Like, it feels really egregious. I mean, you start out with the fact that Apple Music is not paying 30% and Spotify is, or in the case of Spotify, they're just not allowing any way to sign up within their app. You have to know to go to Spotify.com, which we discussed a few weeks ago. It's a clear disadvantage relative to Apple that exists by fiat. It exists by Apple said, this is the way it's going to be. And like, that is problematic in itself. You know, it'd be interesting if this gets into the idea of pre-installs generally. Again, as I've noted, I'm no zealot on this. I'm okay with pre-installed apps and services. I think it's a valid way to sort of leverage the advantage that you earned and you built. What I get very nervous about is, again, this sort of contractual extension of your power to basically reaching in and either pull out revenue or ruin the user experience of your competitors. Yeah, I'm with you. That being said, let me play devil's advocate for a second, taking the Ben Amazon argument. Spotify was in an extremely dominant position when Apple Music came to market like the basis of being able to compete against this given the fact that everything underneath like you basically need all the tracks from the same places all the same artists and all the same songs from all the same labels in order to be able to compete if it wasn't for the fact that apple had this advantage would there actually be any real competition in the digital music market that's questionable well, one, yes, I think there would be because... Uh, I'm mostly being tongue-in-cheek, to be fair. No, no, it's, it's interesting. You kind of threw me for a loop, I have to say. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't ready for that question. But let's say there wasn't. Let's think about it. If to the extent that Spotify was dominant, let's think about why they would be dominant. They would be dominant because consumers like the Spotify offering better than the Apple offering. And by the way, there's not really a real network effect between users for these apps. So that means they're winning by being better by and large. The record companies would be fine because they're paying the same rate to Spotify as they are to Apple or or I'm sure, you know, generally in, in the same ballpark. Like, where's the harm? Yes, it is dominant, but it's dominant by sort of valid means by being first, by being better. The concern about Apple and the pushback I have about this in the app store specifically is there's no way out, right? Even with Amazon, you can go to another e-commerce site. You can go to Walmart. You can go down the street. And we see that playing out in positive ways where competition is happening. There is innovation happening in value chains, in sort of like the products that are in market. I have a friend of mine that works in an industry where Amazon is a big player and he, he, he has horror stories of Amazon all the time. Like they are brutal. They are very, very difficult to deal with. But He's also noted his industry has changed more in the last five years and innovation in branding, innovation in distribution channels, innovation in product, all to deal with sort of this Amazon issue. And I kind of pushed him on and he had to admit that like things are better now, like they're better because Amazon came in and was a big bully, right? Why does that work? Because there are alternatives to Amazon. There are no alternatives to the app store. There's only one app store. You can't side old apps. You have to use Apple's payment processing. There's no pressure release anywhere in that chain. And that's why I think that Spotify has a very compelling case. 
Yeah. I mean, just to back up to the specific, where would be the harm if Spotify was dominant and Apple didn't exist? I would be concerned as I am in a lot of these instances, if one of these companies gets to an absolutely dominant position and then they start to get benefits of scale such that improved user interface, improved algorithm for recommendations, such that a new entrant can't enter and then Spotify is able to raise the prices because there's nowhere else for consumers to go. Right. And I think those concerns are real. Like, I think that, for example, I think the question is Google Monopoly. Google will tell you, well, Alternative is only a click away. But as we've discussed, there are these powerful sort of data network effects that make it a better product. So I I think it's a fair point. And it's a particularly concern with Google because it's, quote unquote, free for users, right? Because all those advantages, all those data effects also make their advertising product that much more compelling and that much more valuable to advertisers. That's why I call them super aggregators, because they have sort of multi-part sort of virtuous cycles. In the case of like a Spotify, though, if they raise prices, then that's a great way to compete. Have a lower price. Having a lower price is always the best way to compete. And to the extent there are challenges with tech, I think this is why the advertising space is by far the most concerning one, because there is no price signal. There's no sort of way to compete along those lines. And so, yeah, I'm not worried about Spotify being dominant. Hmm. It's fair. I also think about this in terms of the ride sharing market and what happens when you start to get a dominant player. And through a certain lens, yes, I think Uber should have won. On the same hand, I'm glad Lyft is still there because the competition keeps the two of them honest. And I think if there's one thing that I am taking away from this, it is this notion of getting competition in markets. And that's the best sunlight for all this stuff. It's better than the regulation. And in so much as you can do things to continue to promote that, absolutely great, or limit companies from doing things to prevent it. But this notion that you come and crack apart these things that are working just because they're big doesn't necessarily seem to be a very good approach to thinking about regulation in tech. Yeah, I think that's right. Again, the analogy I would put, I kind of referenced this before. It's kind of growing on me as I'm, as I'm sort of sitting here. Take a fence building approach as opposed to a axe wielding approach. Build a fence around these companies. They're winning their markets for good reasons because consumers like them because they do deliver benefits to suppliers and they get these virtuous cycles. And so much of the harm is kind of like theoretical harm. And a lot of the benefits are very real. And you should be very sort of careful in sort of interfering with something where that's the case. But I think by building a fence, I mean, don't let that power extend. Be very, very careful with acquisitions. Be very, very careful with these contracts. So another sort of development this week is Amazon ended a most favored nation clause with their merchants, where if you sold on Amazon, you were not allowed to offer a lower price on your goods elsewhere. They did it under some political pressure. And that's exactly the sort of thing that regulators should be focused on. And that's a terrible idea that they had, where if you were a merchant and you were on Amazon, because there's lots of consumers there, but say you want to compete with Amazon, you want to build up your own site, right? You should be able to offer a lower price somewhere else so that people are induced to go elsewhere. And Amazon was artificially limiting competition for their marketplace by virtue of a contract. And again, that gets to where it's a way to extend your power. Like, let's contain the power. Let's focus on ways of limiting sort of the extension of it. But let's make sure we understand that this power is not about owning railways or owning telephone lines. This power comes from consumers really liking what's at stake there. And that's worth something. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we made it. We made it through. We did. I mean, your article was long. This podcast feels long, but not as long as your article was relative to most of your other articles. <laughs> yes, we are, we are. Everything's relative. Everything's relative. That's right. 
Very good. Well, it was good to talk to you. I will be taking vacation next week, so Ooh, uh, we exciting. will not record. Yes. So I will not be writing. We will not be recording. So I will see you in a couple weeks. Sounds good. Enjoy the vacation and I will talk to you then. Well, I talk to you later. See you. That, that was because they were paying for an advertisement, right? Uh, no, they, they are the first advertisement. And ad, I can't believe I just used the Australian pronunciation. The first yes, advertisement. I'm finally <laughs> getting through to you. Only five I've, years later. I, I, I might need a few minutes to, to compose myself right here.